The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. But I'd like you to take your Bibles this morning, if you would, and open them to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19. I've titled the message this morning, How to Make Salvation Impossible. Now, here at Berean, we believe that all Scripture is the inspired, inerrant, preserved Word of God. And we certainly do believe Scripture, such as John 3.16, in which Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We do believe with all of our heart that if any person, any person will come to Christ believing in him, doesn't make any difference who you are, where you've been, or anything else. If you will trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can be saved. Well, is it possible then to make salvation impossible? Well, I think we see an example of it here in our text this morning. I'd like you to stand with me, please, as we read from Matthew 19. We'll start at verse number 16, Matthew 19:16. Is it impossible for some people to be saved? And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. He saith unto him, Which? Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man saith unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Father, thank you for your word. Open up this text to us today. Help us, Lord, to learn from this and see this great uh, soul-winning opportunity that Jesus had and what he did with it. Thank you, Lord, for this your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let me preface my remarks this morning by saying that this is one of those places in Scripture that contains so much biblical truth that it's hard to find a place to stop. I call this one of the utilitarian passages of Scripture because it is so useful for so many things. As I preach, you've heard me refer to this many different times, to this particular place. I know that you've heard messages that have been preached on it. And yet, despite the popularity of this particular passage, it is very often misunderstood. There are some people that want to lean on this scripture to prove that Jesus taught that faith alone in him is not enough for salvation. There are people that have a legalistic mindset, and they think that they found somewhere where Jesus is teaching that law-keeping, that keeping of the commandments are the way that people get into heaven. And then there are others that look at Jesus' inquiry in verse number 17. He said, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, and that is God. 
And they see that as a very serious lack of affirmation that Jesus is really God. Well, those are just terrible misunderstandings because these two issues, the helplessness of a sinner to save himself and also the fact that Jesus is deity, that he is God, are two truths that actually come exploding forth from this passage. And in fact, these are two things that must be believed before a person can actually be saved. And then let me also say that those of you that have attended our Wednesday night outreach sessions, that you have found, hopefully, a new appreciation for this text because this is a perfect demonstration of the soul-winning technique that we've learned in those sessions. Now, I'm really sorry that more of our members don't attend because this text really comes alive when you understand the real way that Jesus talked to people, how he dealt with sinners and with salvation. Now, one thing we know for sure is that Jesus would not do very well in today's soul-winning seminars. He wouldn't do very well in leadership conferences in many churches because his approach to most people is upside down. I mean, he took this rich man to places that no soul-winning presentation of any evangelical would dare go. Now, another important aspect of this passage is the logical progression of Jesus' teachings. Now, this story is told in three different gospel accounts. We find it here. It's also in the book of Mark and in the book of Luke. And each time, it comes immediately after Jesus' blessing of the children. And in those passages, Jesus showed how that uh, his kingdom must be received as a little child, that we receive it by childlike dependent faith, that we come to Christ totally dependent upon him. We're never dependent upon ourselves. And though this man came to Jesus hurriedly and he came with humility, yet this passage perfectly illustrates the, the wrong deceptive attitude of the heart. And so I believe that the Holy Spirit has put this account in this place of Scripture to show us how that salvation can actually be made impossible. Now, let's look at this encounter, encounter with this man that was interested in salvation. Number 16, verse 16 says, And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now, I hesitate to ask you to raise your hand as I ask this question, and you don't have to raise your hand. You don't need to give a visible response. But think about this. How many of you have tried to share your faith with an unbeliever. Now my, my disappointment at, in, with the attendance at outreach training precludes me from asking you for a visible response because I think some of you would be very embarrassed about how long it's been since the last time that you talked about the Savior, the last time that you actually sat down with someone and explained to them how to be saved, or even if you've actually done that at all. Now, I've met a lot of people that say, well, I just can't do that. I can't talk to people about the Lord because my faith is a very personal thing. And I think that we ought to keep faith on the inside. We shouldn't be trying to shove our faith on other people. Well, if you think that way, then you don't understand the method of Jesus. You don't understand what he and the apostles had to say about reaching people with the gospel of Christ. But let's assume for just a moment that you have shared your faith that this is something that you regularly do. Maybe you've done it many times. I would 
without hesitation say that there's none of you in the room today that has ever had a soul-winning opportunity like this one. Now, unfortunately, most of the time when you talk to people about the Lord, you're always worried about how you're going to get into that conversation. I mean, you go up to people and you, you have to approach them cold turkey and you have to sit there with them for a while and just kind of maybe you just do some little icebreakers to, to try to get into that conversation. How do you talk to them about their soul? And so uh, we labor as we do that to get through all of their objections and to get through all of the, the uh, uh, questions that they might have in order to get to this particular place that we can tell them that they need eternal life that they need Jesus in order to be saved. Now, would you notice what happens in this encounter? That this man just jumped all over. I mean, he jumped over top all of those introductory things, and he broached the subject with Jesus himself. He didn't wait for Jesus to get into some kind of a conversation about how can I be saved. He jumped over all of that, and he came to the point himself, and he said to Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? Now, in Mark's account, it tells us that this man didn't just come to Jesus. It says he hurried up to him and he fell down before him, anxiously asking Jesus, how can I be saved? He desperately wanted to know how he could get to heaven. Now, I don't care who you are. If you like to talk to people about the Lord, you could only dream that this could happen to you. That someone would just come up to you and just ask you, how can I be saved? Can you please tell me how to do it? I mean, this is a prospect that like just fell out of heaven, a gift from heaven for a soul winner. I mean, here's somebody really wants to know how to be saved. Now, when you get one like that, you can't fail, can you? I mean, there's just no way that this one's going to get away. This is the perfect opportunity. You can't fail. Or can you? Well, here's somebody that was anxious to be saved. Somebody just had to find out how to be saved. If you can't win that person, then what kind of person can you win? So Jesus had a hot one here. I mean, there is no way that this will end without everybody going home happy, without the bells of heaven ringing, because another soul has been born again. So a can't-miss opportunity. But unfortunately, if Jesus had returned to many of our fundamental churches with the results of this encounter, he would have been demoted to second-class Christian because he did not win this one. Now, I hope that that most of you would really relish this kind of an opportunity, but I would have to say that if someone came up to you like this man did, like this man did, for most of us, for most people, if, if someone came up to us like this, we would be so surprised And we'd be so shocked that we would have no idea what we were supposed to say. And if you've never talked to anyone about the Lord, maybe you wouldn't know how to approach a person like this. You wouldn't know how to answer his questions. And your answer would certainly not be the answer that Jesus gave. And you know why? Because most Christians are taught wrongly about how to speak to lost people. Not many of you and not many others would take the theological route that Jesus took. So let's look for a minute how this man came to Jesus. First of all, we'll notice the character of the man. Now, we can say that he was young, and that's not really an element of his character, but it is a a very important fact in the story. You need to know it. According to verse number 20, he was young. 
Luke also says that he was a ruler and that he was rich, and so that's why we call him the rich young ruler. Matthew and Mark both tell us that this man had great possessions. And so here we have a young guy who at a very early age is already very successful. I have no doubt that this man was a self-starter, that he was one of those outgoing type A personalities that was determined that he would succeed. He was not going to let anything stop him. So he's young, he's successful, he has position, he has a sizable bank account, and this is just the type of guy that most of us would be very envious of. He was a ruler, the Word of God says. And we're not quite sure what it is that he ruled, although... Most people believe, most commentators will say that he was a religious leader of some sort, that perhaps he had a position in the synagogue. And that in itself would have been noteworthy because most of the leaders in the synagogues were not young people. They were old people. That's why they were called elders. They were elders. That speaks to their age and it speaks of their wisdom. And so this man really doesn't fit the typical profile of one who is a ruler of the synagogue. So there really must have been something about this this young man that made him stand out, that he caught the eye of those that were in the know, know, and he was the kind of person that we would just really, we really want to pull this kind of person into Christianity. We want to get him into the church. He's rich, he's successful, he has what we need, so he would be a very valuable asset to the church. So here we have this young man who comes to Jesus, And I think that there are two distinguishing aspects of his character that we can find in this text. First of all, he was humble. And how unusual that is. A little unexpected, I think, for a a self-starter. He was a a successful young man. and, And when people are young like this and they're successful, that often spells conceit. But not this fellow. And maybe that's another reason why he was thought so highly of that people would make him a ruler. With all the stuff that he had going for him, we we would think that this young man would be brash and arrogant, but he wasn't. At least in this particular encounter, he wasn't, but he was a top-notch young man. And there's not a person in Jewish life that would look to him and said, you know something, there's a guy, there's no way that he's going to heaven. No, they wouldn't think that because he had all the indicators of what they thought showed God's favor upon a person. He's successful. He has money. He's a ruler in the synagogue. He has everything that he needs. These are God's blessings that are on this young man. And even the disciples themselves, as we later find out, they were perplexed about this. Why isn't this man saved? He has everything that he needs. And so despite the outward appearances... This young man being a ruler, being a wealthy man, he wasn't ashamed to approach Jesus in the broad daylight and right in front of people and admit, I know that I'm not going to heaven. I know that I don't have eternal life. I'm not sure how to get there. Right in the open, he did this. Uh, You may remember in John chapter 3, there was another man who was a ruler of the Jews. That was Nicodemus. And you remember the story how that he came to Jesus and he came by night? He came under the secrecy of nightfall because he didn't want his friends to know that he was going to see Jesus. So Nicodemus, the one who was the secret one, and for a while at least was a secret disciple, he found eternal life. While this brave, open seeker, the rich young ruler, found it impossible 
to receive what he most desperately wanted. So humility, that's not a problem for this young man. Secondly, we see that he was honorable. Do you notice how he addressed Jesus? He came with respect. He wasn't the typical Pharisee that we've seen before. In the beginning of this chapter, we noted how there were Pharisees that came to see Jesus. And remember, they tempted him. They asked him that question about divorce. And they hoped to cross Jesus up to get him to say something that was not right, to go against the Scriptures. But this man didn't come to Jesus that way. He wasn't tempting him. He wasn't the typical Pharisee. He came with an honest question. He came to him honorably. And he said to him, Good master, good master, he addressed Jesus with respect. But there was a problem with the address. He said, good master, without really thinking what that address meant. You see, goodness is an attribute that belongs only to God. God is the highest good. God is the source of all physical and and of all moral good. So Jesus said, there is none good but God. And in that, Jesus claimed goodness because he was one with the Father. Well, this young man didn't understand good in the sense that Jesus used it because he thought that he was also good. What Jesus is doing here is prepping him for the rest of the conversation in which he will prove that there is no goodness in any of us. So this young man came to Jesus He called him good master or good rabbi without acknowledging that Jesus was God. And you know that's the mistake that people often make. There are so many people that want to talk about how how good that Jesus is, but they don't believe that Jesus was actually God. But Jesus can't be good if he claimed to be God, but he actually wasn't. Here's what John Butler said. He said, if Christ is good, then he is God because he claimed to be God. If he is not God, then he certainly is not good, for a good man would not claim to be God when he's not. If Christ is not God, then he is the biggest rascal that ever set foot on the planet, for he absolutely claimed to be God. Now, how do we know that this man did not acknowledge that Jesus was God? It's because at the end of this conversation, he walked away. There is nobody that walks away from God when you know who he is. Now, can you imagine someone knowing that they're standing in the presence of God and hearing God speak to them and then turn around to turn their back on him? There is no one who believed that Jesus was God that ever walked away from him. And you know how we know that? Because 1 Corinthians 12 says that there is no one that can say that Jesus is the Lord Or, in other words, that Jesus is the one true living God. There's no one that can say that except the Holy Spirit causes him to say that. Except the Holy Spirit has convicted him and caused him to believe. He'll never admit that Jesus is the Lord. And so this young man walked away from Jesus. That shows he didn't recognize that he was God. But there's one thing that he did think about Jesus. He thought he must have some special kind of insight about what it takes to get to heaven. Because he came to him and he said, what must I do to have eternal life? Now let's notice, secondly, the command of Christ. Look at the answer Jesus gave to the question. If thou will enter into life, keep the commandments. Now that is not an answer that we expect Jesus to give. Doesn't he know about faith? Doesn't Jesus know about grace? 
Doesn't he know? There's nothing at all that we can do to, to earn our salvation. Nothing we can do good to be saved. Didn't Jesus know that? Why didn't he take this man to the cross? Why didn't he talk to him about the death that he was about to die and how God had sent him into the world to die for sinners? Why didn't he tell him about the tremendous love that God has for us? Well, Jesus knows all about faith. He knows all about grace. He knows how to save people. So we can't attack his method. This fellow didn't know about faith. He didn't know about grace. But he was like all the rest of the human race that believes that there is something that we can do to trade with God for our salvation. Jesus will show him that it's not possible to trade with God. And so what he did was he took him to the woodshed of the law in order to teach him a lesson. And that was necessary before he could ever bring him to grace. Now, why is it that Jesus would talk to him about the law instead of talking to him about grace? Well, there's some good reasons for that, and that is that God has designed the law to teach us some things. What must you do to be saved? Well, the first thing that you must realize before you can be saved, you have to know who God is. You must know who God is. First and foremost, you have to know who God is that God is high and holy, that he has a standard that must be matched, and his standard is absolute perfection. God has the right to tell you what you must do, and God says that you must be holy as he is holy. Jesus said it another way in Matthew chapter 5. He said, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And so what did Jesus tell him to do? He told him to keep the commandments. Folks, that is a tall order. Keep the commandments? Yes. And not just one of the commandments. Keep all of the commandments. From the day that you're born until the day that you die, in every every circumstance, in every time of your life, no matter what's going on, the Word of God says if you're going to get to heaven, you must keep the commandments. If you're going to be saved by them, then you have to keep them. And this is not an optional thing. This is for everybody. God said, keep the commandments. Well, does God have the right to tell us to keep the commandments? Well, did you know that's an interesting debate? Actually, it's a very theological debate because there are some people that say no, that God cannot command us to do something that we cannot do. Do you know that there are some Baptists who believe that, that they will say, God will not command you to do what you cannot do? We know that God commands repentance and faith. And there are people say that, well, God doesn't have the right to command that unless you have the ability for repentance and faith. And yet Paul said that God commands everybody to repent, and at the same time he taught that we're all helpless, that there's no one who actually has the ability to repent. Oh, we teach, don't we, that repentance and faith are gifts from God? That's not something that we naturally have. The Word of God plainly says that, that repentance is granted to us. It says that faith is God's gift, and God commands it from us even though we don't have the ability to do that. Well, that doesn't match a lot of people's theology because they believe that a person has the ability to do both. And so if you want to repent, you can. If you want to believe, you can, because God will not command you to do what you cannot do. And if they saw it any other way, then they would never be able to argue against God's election and God's predestination. But you can take this passage 
and destroy that argument because Christ commanded this man to do what he could not do. He said, keep the commandments. And you know something? It doesn't matter whether you're actually capable of doing it. Because what do you think that Jesus would tell him? Do you think Jesus would say, don't keep the commandments? Can you imagine God ever telling anybody, don't keep the commandments? No, of course this is what God says. You must keep the commandments. Now, you see, the point of this is to make this man see that God is perfect and there is no way for us to get from here up to up there without being perfect. You have to be holy in order to get to heaven. You must keep the commandments to get there. You must do it. But the problem is you can't. You cannot keep the commandments. And so what has to happen for you to get to heaven? Well, what has to happen is that God must relax the standard. Is that right? God relaxes the standard? No, God never relaxes the standard. Now, there are many people that would like for God to do that. In fact, there are many people who think that God does that. Because if you talk to just about anybody, they'll tell you, you ask them, how do you get to heaven? And they would say, well, the way to get to heaven is to be good. In other words, you have to have more good days than you do bad days. You have to do more good things than you do bad things, and then the good things will outweigh the bad things, and then you'll be able to go to heaven. You know what that is? That's asking God to relax the standard. God never does that. If you're going to get to heaven by being good, then you have to be good every single day, all of the time, and never commit the very first sin. God has a standard, and his divine justice will not let him come short of that standard. He is holy and he's perfect, and in order for you get to get to him, you must be holy and perfect. And folks, that is a big problem. Jesus said, keep the commandments. His soul-winning approach did not take him to the cross. It did not take him to grace. He took him straight to the law. And why did he do it? Well, because of the second requirement for salvation. Secondly, you must know who you are. You must know who God is, and you must know who you are. And this man did not know who he was. That is not as God knew him. So the young man just perked up when Jesus said this, keep the commandments. Well, which ones? And he asked that as if he was just quite, quite skeptical about it because he thought that he kept all of the commandments, and yet he had no peace in his heart. He had no feeling that he had eternal life. He knew that he wasn't right with God although he was thoroughly convinced that he'd done everything that God told him to do. So which commandment should he keep? Maybe he's left one out. Maybe there's something else to do. And notice here how Jesus took him through the law. Verse 18, he saith unto him, Which? Which commandment do I keep? And Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt bear, not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. And thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now, what Jesus did was to take him to the second table of the law. He took him to commandments 6, 7, 8, and 9, and then he went back to circle back to, ver to commandment number 5, and then he finished with the summation of all the commandments that come in the second half of the de de uh, Decalogue, and that is you are to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, most of you probably know, I hope you do, that the Ten Commandments are set up in two sections. The first part of it, deals with our relationship with God. That you have no other gods before me, God says. You don't have any graven images. You don't take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. You remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 
that first part of God's law reveals to us the duty that we have towards God. And then the second part is the duty that we have towards our fellow man. Now let me just add something here that all Christians should know the Ten Commandments. How many of you can recite the Ten Commandments? You don't have to raise your hand. I don't want to embarrass you. All Christians should know the Ten Commandments. And if you came on Wednesday nights, you would understand why that is so critical. You'd understand this because you definitely need to remember the Ten Commandments. Now, all of you should know them because right here we see in this place, in the gospel accounts, that the Ten Commandments actually undergird almost all of the teachings of Jesus. He always has something to say about commandments. And so in soul-winning opportunities, the commandments of God are very important. They're a key component. So Jesus took him to the second part of the law, purposely skipping commandment number 10. And what was the response of the young man? He didn't know who he was because he said, I have kept all of these commands from my youth up. And there lies the problem of why he didn't have eternal life. He did not see himself as a sinner. He didn't know who he was. Now, for those of you that are outreach class attendees, what is the gist of where Jesus is taking him him with this line of questioning? Isn't it this? Would you consider yourself to be a good person? Now, that's the question that you ask first to analyze to see if a person really knows who he is. Do you consider yourself to be a good person? And what did this man say? Of course, I'm a good person. I have kept all of the commandments from my youth up. Well, if you keep all of the commandments, you're a good person, aren't you? Now, what Jesus will show him is that nobody is a good person because there is nobody that has kept God's commandments. And so he'll prove to this man that he hasn't been what God expected him to be. He was a sinner. And how did Jesus prove it to him? He did it by taking him to that 10th commandment, the one that he skipped. The young man said, all these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? Isn't that an interesting question? What lack I yet? And that's more revealing when you read it in the gospel of Mark, because Jesus said there is one thing that you lack. Now, G. Campbell Morgan, who was a great preacher in the early part of the 20th century, said that there are three great surprises that are in this text. I'll just give you two of those. But two of the most surprising things that we find here is that Jesus said to this man he lacked one thing, just one thing. And the second surprising thing is he lacked anything. Both of those are perplexing. Most of us would say he did not lack anything. He had it all. Here's a man ready to go into the kingdom of God with bells on. Jesus said, you lack one thing, and that one thing was about to explode into all things. And so he brings him to the 10th commandment, and this is the one that we can call thirdly the clincher of the text. Jesus said unto him, if thou wilt be perfect, Go and sell that thou hast and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You notice that Jesus never got him to the cross. 
He never took him to the love of God. He never talked to him about forgiveness. He never talked about how wonderful that heaven will be. He never got that far because he stopped this man dead in his tracks with this commandment. All that you have to do, he said, is sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. What a strange demand that was. Was anybody ever saved by selling everything? If that's the way to get to heaven, come by my house on Saturday. We're having a garage sale and everything goes. If that's the way you get to heaven, I'm doing it. I mean, how many of you want to go to heaven? You want to go, don't you? Wouldn't you do everything you can to get to heaven? This is what Jesus told the man to do. And it was a clincher to show the man that he had not kept the commandments. So what was it that the man lacked? He coveted his possessions. He was guilty of breaking that 10th commandment which just circles up and it blows apart the first part of the Decalogue. His riches meant more to him than Christ. His riches meant more to him than God. So what is his problem? Jesus never had to take him to the first part of the Decalogue until this point because the second part of God's law is impossible to keep. All all righteous, self-righteous people think they have kept it, but they haven't. They can't keep the second part of the Decalogue or they can't keep the first part because they can't keep the second. Now, if there is one part of the law that would be an easier impossibility, so to speak, what would it be? It would be the second half, wouldn't it? I mean, that would have to be the easier impossibility. But what Jesus did was to show him, you can't even keep that second part of the law because you can't keep the first. Now, what did the Apostle Paul write? Let me read to you from Colossians 3, verse 5. He said, Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and listen, and covetousness, which is idolatry. This man's covetousness was idolatry. What did he say? I've kept the whole law. And Jesus just showed him that he missed the most important part of all, that he had a God and his God was his money. That's where his trust was. That was the thing that he was unwilling to give up. He would not give up his God. Now, folks, that just flows out everywhere. This is like like an exploding volcano with lava that just flows down and covers all of his self-righteousness. If you do not love God supremely, you cannot have eternal life. You're not alive to God, you're spiritually dead. And so when is salvation impossible? It's when you insist that you will come on your terms instead of God's terms. You can't ignore God's law and you can't ignore God's remedy for sin. You don't have what it takes to get to heaven. And you can't get what it takes to get to heaven unless God gives it to you. It comes through him. So what must you do to be saved? Well, you have to do what this young man should have done. And that is first, admit that you are a sinner. If you're going to be saved, you have to admit that you are a sinner. And this man would not admit it. He wouldn't come uh, in the helplessness of a child. He didn't come in total dependence. He was self-dependent. He was too good. And Jesus exposed that sin by taking him to the law. Now, folks, what is the law given to us for? It's given to show us that we have no hope. The law was not given to save us. It was given to show that we have no hope. As Paul said, it is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. So the law stops us dead in in our tracks. And the law says to you, you think you're coming this way? Forget about that. There's no way that you're coming this way. Don't even try it. 
And so if you try to be saved by what you do, you're never going to get there. You're not rich in righteousness. You don't have the kind of righteousness that it takes to get to heaven. Instead, you are bankrupt. This is what Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now notice the second part that Jesus talked to him about. What do you need to be saved? Well, it involves commitment. All must be surrendered. Now, do you know that this is a part of the gospel message that's long been abandoned by the soul winners? They will not say what Jesus said. Jesus said, you must follow me. In other words, he's telling this man, you must be a disciple to be in my kingdom. Now, amazingly, the evangelical landscape is filled with those, and there are many Baptists among the number that believe that or say that you need to believe in order to be saved, but you don't need to surrender to Jesus Christ. That can come later. I mean, some of those that they consider to be right up next to Jesus in their soul-winning prowess have actually said, you do not need to be a disciple of Jesus in order to be saved. But I think Jesus cleared up all the confusion, if there is any. He said, sell all that you have and come and follow me. And so what is he insisting upon? He's insisting that he must be the Lord of your life. Now, your problem might not be money. It might be some other thing. But if you put something above Jesus Christ, then you will not enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is very clearly telling us that we must surrender all to him and make this commitment of discipleship. Now, do you have to get rid of everything that you own in order to be a Christian? Not unless you're unwilling to. If you hold on to an idol, no matter what it is, it will have to be given up before you come to Christ. As someone well said, if he is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. And do you understand this is why so many churches are filled up with unbelievers? This is why there are so many that fall away from their faith because they never made the actual commitment to be saved. Who can be saved that does not obey the Lord? And you say, well, Pastor Smith, that sounds like you're preaching work salvation, that we're being saved by our works. Well, if that's what you think, then you need to argue with Jesus because this is exactly what he said. What is he talking about here? He's not talking about being saved by works, but he's talking about a real heart that has been touched by the grace of God. Someone that has been regenerated is someone who has Jesus as everything. Just like we learn in the parable of the pearl of great price, the man sold everything that he had to obtain the precious pearl. And what was it? It was Jesus Christ. He surrendered everything to have Christ. Now, you see, here is a story that started out with a perfect soul-winning opportunity. Here is a man who wants to be saved. Mark says he ran up to Jesus, he fell down at his knees, he asked the right question, he came to the right person, he received the right answer. But after hearing it all, he made the wrong response. And we look at this and we think, what a pitiful soul winner that Jesus is. Everything that was in his favor, he had a, oh, everything was stacked in his favor. Here's a man who wants to be saved. He's, he's anxious to be saved. And Jesus could not close the deal. So Jesus doesn't get his soul winning certificate. Why, why, why couldn't he close the deal? Why didn't this man sign the card? Why didn't he pray the prayer? Nine out of ten Baptists would have had this man's name on the dotted line, but not Jesus. Why? 
because here is a man that made salvation impossible. Now, it makes you wonder how there are so many of the soul winners out there that are getting impossible people saved. I don't know how they do it. And so what I'm telling you this morning, you have to be careful that you are not the person in this story. Is there something that keeps you from giving everything to Jesus? Do you know who you are? Do you know who God is? Is it impossible for you to be saved? It just might be. I hope it's not, but it just might be. You have to come the way that Jesus told this man to come. Give up all dependence upon self. Give it all up. Give it all to him and come follow him. That's what salvation is all about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and this story that we've read this morning. We know that this is just a profound story and uh, as I said in the beginning, used in so many different ways to uh, preach the gospel of Christ. And yet, with all of the clearness of this, the approach that Jesus had, the way that Jesus took this man to the law to show him that he was a sinner, yet that is the big thing that's left out of most soul-winning presentations today. Help us to see, Lord, to reach people for you. They must come to the understanding that they are lost sinners that they are unworthy of the grace of God. They have nothing to claim. Only Jesus can make them worthy. Lord, we pray that you'd speak to some heart today. Help us also that are claimed to be born-again believers in you, that we would look at what Jesus did here and we would make this the way that we approach sinners, making people understand they need the grace of God because they cannot get to heaven on their own. Help us, Lord, as we reach people for you. Bless this church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.